Well, uh, as you know, I've been praying that we wouldn't have to deal with this passage, but it's now time. You may not want to come back after we're done here. <laughs> I just want to point out, you are the one that chose First Corinthians, are you not? Just... It's a long book. <laughs> <laughs> he was pretty sure that uh, yeah, whatever. <laughs> something was going to happen. <laughs> Well, let's uh, let's dig into it, and for just a minute or two, ignore what I, I've written up there. But I, I thought I'd put that up there before we got started because it'll be germane to what we're going to discuss in a second. Um, review a couple of things about the section we're in right now. In a sense, this section that we're in started with first, uh, excuse me, chapter eight. <clears throat> The theme of this section that goes on through the end of this chapter chapter is our freedom, our uh, liberty in Christ. The first three chapters, 8, 9, and 10, had to do with liberty and freedom in uh, essentially non-moral areas of life. The main issue that was uh, on the front burner for Paul and for the Corinthians was this issue of eating idle meat. I, I'm not going to review all that again because obviously you know that. Now chapter 11 switches to another dimension of liberty, but it's liberty or freedom in worship. We do not know, um, to be really honest, we do not know exactly what's going on here in verses 2 through 16. I mean, honestly, men, I can um, I can show you probably about a dozen books and maybe 35, 40 articles that try to wrestle through what is going on in this section. Because we, uh, we know some things, but we don't know others. I mean, for, certainly we know with clarity what he's talking about when he mentions the term head in verse 3. And some of the things he mentions are near the end of the chapter. But verses 4, 5, and 6 are really incredibly difficult verses. And the verses themselves, or maybe I should put it in another way, the grammar of these verses um, is, is a grammar that is some of the most difficult in the entire New Testament. Because Paul leaves... Thank you. I don't know if it's what you need. <laughs> Fred, in the history of my life, I've never turned down a cup of coffee. There's no recorded event in history that ever happened. So um, there's there's a word or two missing. Now, when I say it's missing, it's it's just the grammar of the Greek language. It's assumed that the writers and excuse me, the readers and hearers know what he's talking about. But you and for you and me, two thousand years later. We don't understand it. We really don't exactly know what's going on here. So let me put um, a scenario together for you, okay, that, that apparently it was something like this. As you know, the Corinthians, as all Christians of the first century, gathered on Sunday for worship. Now, their worship uh, would have been in house churches. You know, there were no buildings like we think of church today as a building, uh, that didn't come about until the 300s uh, to the early 400s. So we're talking about small gatherings of people 
We're talking about small gatherings of people in houses, and we're talking about um, probably the most um, socially diverse gathering of people in the Greco-Roman world. And what I mean by that is you would have slaves and their masters. You'd have men and women. You'd have Roman soldiers and uh, former um, uh, people who had been in prison for things they'd done against the empire because they all had come to faith in Christ. And the most social equalizing force in the Greco-Roman world was Christianity. I mean, no matter, and that's one of the things that those who are very critical of Christianity, they can't ignore that. Uh, the most liberating force in the ancient world for women was Christianity. The most liberating, I mean, just every area of society was touched. And so I'm saying all that because as these various groups would gather together for worship in, you know, in relatively small groups, um, you would have lots of practices and like, lots of traditions and things like that that would be brought to those. And we're going to see more of that as we get past verse 17 and following, because that's another issue of liberty and worship. So apparently, I'm hoping you're following me so far, apparently as they're gathering for worship, how they are adorning their bodies and what they're putting on their head in some way was disconcerting to Paul. It was raising a number of questions for Paul, and it, uh, we're assuming was coming back to him in the forms of both questions and perhaps even, Paul, what do we do about all of this? It's really unsettling to our local church type questions. Okay? Now, so far with everything I said, are you with me? Do you sort of understand what's going These on? These were questions that he was aware of that were being asked, and, and Correct. He, he needed to respond to them. Uh, correct. Mm -hmm. But like we've seen earlier in our in our study from chapter seven on, we have the answer. We don't have the question. It's like Jeopardy. You know, we have the answer, right? but we don't exactly know what the question is. And we're at least for the most part in the previous uh, chapter seven, eight, nine, ten, we really don't have much difficulty figuring out what the question is. Here, we're not sure at all what the question is. But it it has something to do especially, but perhaps even more so, something to do with how women are dressing and adorning their body for worship. Okay? Now, what you and I have to do as we study this and try to apply this is look for the transcultural principle and stay away from a question like, must women wear hats to church? That's probably not the issue here. It, it, it just, it, there are other things going on. So if you're sort of with me, let's dig in. Okay? Verse one, uh, 2. Now remember, verse 1 of chapter 11 goes with chapter 10. It's a false chapter break there. But Now I praise you, so before he slams them on the head, he has some good things to say to them. Now I praise you because you remember me in everything. Now that's just affirming Paul's relationship with them and that they, 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 they treat him well, they respect him as an apostle, and you hold firmly to the traditions 
as I delivered them to you, his teaching. So what's he saying? I really affirm you people, despite all of your challenges and all of your problems, you take my apostleship seriously and you listen to and obey and try to understand what I'm teaching you. But what's the first word of verse 3? But. <laughs> so this is, if, if he would just have said, as you ask in the question you wrote to me, and then he summarizes the question, he doesn't do that. So we're really frustrated with this. Because he jumps right into something, and presumably they understood exactly what he was saying. Uh, we don't. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of woman, and God is the head of Christ. Now, if you look up here, what I've done, and I, I want to take a minute or two, and for now just kind of ignore these two questions in the middle. The term head that we translate, and I, I don't usually do this, but I'm, I'm going to do it here, it's kephale. If you look at that, you might recognize I mean, You can see we bring that into, into the English language, cephalic. That has something to do with our head in medicine. Doctors use that. Well, anyway, whether you understand what I'm saying or not. So he's using this word head, and he says, Christ is the head of every man, and man is the head of woman, and God is the head of Christ. So he's drawing a parallel here. The father... Father is the head of Christ and the man, and because of how he develops this, we're pretty sure he's talking about the husband being the head of the wife. Not just generally man being head of woman, but this marital relationship. And then he, he adds here that Christ is the head of the man. But what's really important, this is what's really, really important. As the father is the head of Christ, so the husband is the head of wife. That's the analogy he's drawing. Now, are you with me so far? Mm -hmm. Now, as you undoubtedly know, in 2014, this side of this drawing is really unpopular. <laughs> I mean, you can hardly talk like this today. So I'm going to come back to that, and um, we'll talk about what I think is going on here in just a second. So why he does this, why he right out of the chute brings this up, has something to do with the question they're asking. We just don't know exactly what it is. But he's establishing a theological principle. Now, in the Greek language, the term kephale has one of two meanings, source or authority. Okay? Source, in other words, origin, beginning. If you look, if you look at all uses of this word in literature outside the Bible, you will find one example of this. You will find literally thousands of examples of this. So, logically, which one should we understand? Not source. 
but authority. As the Father, now remember, this doesn't have anything to do with their essence. It has to do with their function. As the Father has authority over the Son and sends the Son. Following? The Father, it doesn't have anything to do with essence, what makes God God, because both the Father and the Son are God. But as the Father has authority over the Son, and commissions the Son, and sends the Son, and so on, and then sends the Spirit, the husband has authority over the wife, as Christ has the authority over the man. So he's talking about authority, positions of leadership, and roles. He is not talking about the value of people. He's not talking about the, uh, the essence of what makes somebody valuable. He's talking about a role. So this verse, is well actually these two verses, are establishing the role differences. Now, I, you just have to start doing this so you don't understand what these verses are. So I know you probably don't want to be stretched this much over your lunch break on Wednesday afternoon. But I don't know how else to approach this, so I'm going to stop and review again. First of all, the word kephale, head, means authority. It does not mean source. It's, those who try to argue this are on, and this has been admitted and shown and on and on and on, it's just very not retentable. This is a statement of authority. And it's dealing with the role of authority. It's not dealing with the value of somebody or the essence of somebody. The role relationships and role differences of father and son in the Trinity is that the father sends the son. Right? You with me? So over here, the role difference is that the husband has leadership and role responsibility over the wife. Or if you want to put it another way, the father, the husband, the man is the head of the family. And if you go to Ephesians 5, verse 22 through into chapter 6, about verse 4, that is just established. It's a very, very, very unpopular thing today to say. It doesn't have anything to do with the worth, value, or essence of the woman. That's not what it's talking about. I used to be, I don't do much of that anymore, but I used to be in debates. I debated a number of feminist uh, uh, individuals uh, over the years. And right at the, right, I'll shoot, I just say, I stipulate equality between man and woman. And there are three biblical reasons why men and women are equal. They're equal because both are created in the image of God. Genesis 1, 26, 27, 28. They're both equal in Christ, Galatians 3.28. And they're both equal in being joint heirs with Christ, 1 Peter 3.7. The issue isn't equality. That's not the issue. The biblical issue has never been equality. The issue is what's the role difference. R-O-L-E. And that's what Paul's dealing with here. He's not talking about essence. He's not talking about value. He's not talking about superiority versus inferiority. Nothing could be further from his mind. And in terms of Scripture, that is absolutely true. There is nothing that talks about superiority versus inferiority. Jim, when you say role, you're talking function, aren't you? Correct. That's right. The functional role. And, there, and I'm now getting a little bit beyond what Paul is saying here. 
but there are at least four major reasons why the role of the husband is a leadership role in the scriptures. But again, I mean, today it's, <laughs> it's just a very, very, very difficult thing to talk about today. I mean, it really is. It's just um, even within uh, and among um, in certain Christian circles. I mean, you just you can't you can't even talk like this. And it's really sad because they just a person who really gets upset with this doesn't understand what the scriptures are teaching. They make it into, well, then you're saying a man is superior to a woman. That's not what the Bible's saying. That's not what he's saying. That's not what I'm saying. That a woman, the best thing for a woman is to be barefoot and pregnant. That's not what the Bible's teaching. That a woman can never work outside the home. That is not what the Bible teaches. You go to Proverbs 31. The, the, the woman, the noble woman there, she works. She works outside the home. She serves in the marketplace. She takes some of the things to her husband and sits at the gate. I mean, it, but it's trying to get our arms around, what are these role differences? And that's what Paul is appealing to here. When he brings up the word head. All right? Now let me stop. Take a breath. I want to sip a cup of coffee here. Are you with me? Do you have any questions? I mean, the way I've, I, I, I'm not very good at drawing things because I'm very sloppy, but does that sort of make sense, what I'm trying to do there? Because he's making a comparison between the relationship of the father and the son and the man and the woman, the husband and the wife. And he's, he's, that analogy is being made based on the idea of head. Okay? As the father is the head of the son, so the husband's the head of the wife. That's essentially what he's saying. Um, the Father performs his function eternally, and so does Jesus Christ, his Son. That's correct. It's eternal. And um, do, you, do you think part of the reason that this delineation and clarity isn't, isn't uh, being perceived is because uh, man has not, unlike God and Christ, haven't carried out their role their biblical role as it's being presented in terms of function and love yeah, primarily in, in within the family primarily I mean because guys are running I mean they, they drop a, their seed in a woman and run off and I mean and then guys go to divorce real quick and I'm out of here um, it's not being practiced, and so why would anyone understand what that definition is if they don't see it in front of them? I guess is uh, exactly. kind of a question that I had. You know, I got a, when you go to camp, I got a theological doctrinal question on it. Sorry, okay, it always makes me think of it when I read this. You sure you want to know? You want to know? Yeah, maybe well, I'll be able to. Yeah, I don't think it's a long. I mean, I've always been a little bit confused because if the if my understanding that the Trinity are three equal parts, is that the correct statement even make? That they are equal, Father, Son, and Spirit. Right. As as the Trinity, they are equal, and yet I see the references, the Scripture of a hierarchy. So which so I'm always been a little it's bit hierarchy of function, not of essence. 
It's a hierarchy of function, not of essence. Because okay. God is one essence of three persons who differ relationally, Father, Son, and Spirit, and functionally. Each have a role. The hierarchy is not one of, of power, it's one of function. The Father sends the Son. The Father and the Son send the Spirit. That's not a statement of one being inferior or superior, it's function. And Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14 is a fabulous place to really start and starting to think about the difference in the function. The Father chooses the Son, redeems the Spirit seal. There are three different functions with company, accomplished by the essence of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit. What's the reference again? Uh, which one? The one Ephesians. Just... Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. The Father chooses, the Son redeems, the Spirit seals. That's just an example of what Terry's raised. That is a way to answer it. You've got, you must, whenever you talk about the Godhead, you must always separate essence from function. Essence is what makes God God. Omnipotence, omniscience, omnipresence, eternal, I mean, all of those things. <clears throat> See, it's really, it, you, you make a good, I, I appreciate that because I understand it almost better with the male and female understanding roles and not above. But, you know, I think it's been me being misled by when I read scripture, it always sounds like Jesus is uh, subordinate to the Father. Because I don't know the Father, yeah. and blah, blah, blah. No. but that could still be part of the role. Because he is the God-man. Yeah. Yeah. See, you have two theological tension points when you talk about God. One, you have the tension point of how is there three in one. One essence of three. You separate essence from function. And then within, when you talk about Jesus, you have the additional tension of he's both God and man at the same time. From Christmas on, he's God and man at the same time. And I mean, those two things, are they stretch us. But it's... That's why um, language is so important in, in this age in which we live, this digital age. It still boils down to the words we use and how we define the words are really important. All right, now, <laughs> it's okay. We're taking a lot of time on this, but is, I want to do something else if I can. I, I do have another question, too. Uh, yes, please. What, um, I, I understand the function and the essence. Right. But, but why is... Paul honing in on, or why does the problem appear to be how they adorn their heads? The, the, the ladies. I, I can't answer that there. I just don't know. And the hair, not, you know, and covering. I, and the men, if it, it's a disgrace for him, his head to be covered. I don't understand that. Well, I think that is the, the big challenge for us. But I think what we have to do here is separate the teaching and doctrinal certainties we have from the cultural practices. Follow me? The cultural practices are, uh, or seem to be, uh, I'm going to talk about it, so I'll shoot ahead real quickly. Um, In the Greco-Roman world, when a man went into an idol temple, like a temple to Aphrodite or Pallas or somebody like one of their many gods, he would often put his, he would take his toga and turn it into the upper part of something would cover his head. Okay? And a woman, typically in the ancient world, because a man, I mean, in the Greco-Roman world, men rarely had long hair. 
I mean, if you kind of picture some of the Greek and Roman statues that you can see in museums, if you're going to look, look really hard, almost in vain, to ever see a statue of a man with long hair. He's very short hair. And rarely does he have facial hair. Unlike a thousand years before that in the ancient world, in like Mesopotamia or Egypt or whatever. All right, now, how about a woman? Well, typically in the Greco-Roman world, a woman wore her head up. What we would kind of, if I say a bun, do you know what I mean by that? That's how they typically, they wore their hair up. And so if a woman doesn't have her hair up when she goes to worship, that's saying something culturally. And what I think, many argue, to have a woman's hair hanging loose down, not up or anything, was often what prostitutes did. So culturally, Paul is saying, it matters how you adorn your body for worship. And this, I'm getting ahead of myself because I'm trying to build on the doctrine he's laying down, but Whatever you do when you dress for worship, you dress in such a way that you do not draw attention to yourself. That's what he says in 1 Timothy 5 and what Peter says in 1 Peter 3. However you adorn your body for worship, men or women, don't dress in such a way that you draw attention to yourself. That's the transcultural principle we're looking for. And what we're struggling with is we don't exactly know what was going on here at Corinth. But whatever they were doing, both the man, but apparently even more so the, the, the woman, they were, their hair, and however they had their hair, two effects were occurring. One effect was it was drawing attention to them. And two, it was difficult to figure out whether a man or woman. And so Paul seems to be alluding to those two things as he develops from verse, would that be verse five, uh, verse seven down to sixteen, where he's going to develop five reasons why he doesn't like what they're doing. So I, I probably have an answer, but I'm, I'm I'm kind of getting to the end when we're all done. But I, it's okay to ask those questions. All right, let me. It's not a bunny trail because it really relates to this. When when the word Kephale or head is used, and it relates to or refers to, uh, as it does, authority or leadership. What kind of leadership, what kind of authority is it? Well, it's servant. <clears throat> other centered headship, or if you will, leadership. It's not the authoritarian, dictatorial um, tyrant. It's a, it's a servant, other-centered headship leadership. So if you go back to Ephesians 5, Paul says, Husband, you are the head of your wife. Love your wife as Christ loved the church. So how do you lead? You lead by other-centered servant leadership. And if you go on then, and so the wife, he says in that same passage, Ephesians 5, 22 and following, he says, wives, submit to your husbands as the church submits to Christ. Now submission there is that inclination to follow and that disposition to yield to a servant, other-centered, loving headship. 
when you see those two things, that's a perfect match, isn't it? It's not saying anything about the wife being inferior to the husband. It's not saying the husband's better than that's not because they're equal. Equal in the image bearing Christ, equal at the cross, and equal in joint heirship. We're talking about roles here. And for some reason, we just can't, I can't anymore, get get that to be the basis of the dialogue. It always comes, oh, you're making the woman inferior. That's I'm not saying, but it doesn't matter what I say. What is the scripture saying? The scripture is not saying the wife is inferior. That's not what it's saying. Or that she's subordinate. It's not saying she's subordinate. What it's saying is the complementary roles are someone needs to lead. Now, my wife, this is probably an unimaginable thing for you. It's somewhat unimaginable for me. But ballroom dancing has all, right, all of a sudden become very important to Peggy. <laughs> and, and so important to you. <laughs> I didn't say that. <laughs> but in, in, in ballroom dancing, someone must lead. Now, I, I've learned that. That's not something I intuitively knew. But I, I'm saying all that because... In everything in life, in everything in life, someone has to lead. So what does the Bible say? You may not, I mean, may not like it. I mean, most men, particularly, the average, and this is a really broad statement, but across our culture, not just among Christians, but the typical man who's married in the United States, that's not how he, that's not the role he's playing. That is not the role he's playing. The typical man who's married in the United States, again, and this isn't just Christian, I'm talking broadly across the whole country, it, he's a very selfish, self-centered, self-indulgent human man. Narcissistic. And narcissistic. Yeah. That's the typical man in the United States. Now, again, that's a very broad statement. That's why if you go to Ephesians 5.32, Paul says, what I have just said, what I have just said is a mystery. And everybody shakes their head. Yes, it is. It's semicolon. But I'm speaking of Christ and the church. I remember years and years ago when I first studied, I thought, what in the world? He's just talked about the difference between a man and a woman in a marriage. And he now says, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Because if you go back and look at Ephesians 5, 22 through 32, he's been comparing the husband and wife role to the relationship of the church and Christ. So what's he telling us? One, that marriage is a supernatural institution. It's not natural. Two, that when you see a, 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 a marriage, a husband and wife functioning this way, where the husband is a servant, leads, and the wife has that disposition to yield, that inclination to follow that kind of leadership, you have the perfect example, perfect paradigm of Christ in the church. So it's telling us something. Christians who are married have an assignment. They're illustrating to the world something supernatural. And that, when, I mean, when I do, you heard me say that, I spent some time with, with Andrew and his wife uh, before they were married. And it, it's, it's just something to drill into young people as they're getting married. If they're believers, your assignment is to see your marriage as supernatural. And to start seeing that. And that means the Spirit's going to enable you, the, the empowerment and enablement to do it. And it's just, it transformed, it should transform how we look at marriage. So when we see head or headship or what Paul's talking about in Ephesians, he's talking about something 
that is so countercultural. It was countercultural in the first century. It's countercultural in the 21st century. That's why it's so difficult for us. It's so difficult for us to, to talk like this anymore. Because the common set of assumptions that makes this meaningful, people don't even accept the assumptions. Are, are you with me? But Jim, they had to have had at least as much of a problem with this concept back then because wasn't it during that time that women were basically looked at as property? Oh, heaven. Mental? Well, I mean, it depends, but generally speaking, yes. The, I mean, the, the, in the Greco-Roman world, women were considered inferior. If the only the only Greek city state where that was an exception was Sparta. Sparta were that's really an, that's a unique thing to study. In Sparta, women were social equals to men, and there are reasons for that because it's a military state. But in Athens, I mean, Aristotle and Plato both have some of the most derogatory, offensive things to say about women. I mean, you read that today, you think, oh my goodness, there's no comparison to what Paul is saying and what Plato and Aristotle are saying about women. There's no comparison at all. And yet, you rarely hear that. Everybody jumps on Paul, that, that male, power-centered rabbi. We don't listen to him. That, they just don't understand what he's saying, because they don't, they don't take time to look into the words and the meaning of the words and what he's really saying. All right, now, um, I don't remember where or why I started down the bunny trail. I started, but... Let's come back to this. So I kind of feel a bit disjointed here. I, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking I forgot something, but I, I hope I didn't. Have I answered, maybe I haven't answered all your questions, but have I answered the initial questions you might have? Or can I ask you, are you with me? Yes. And that's really what I'm really asking is, are you with Paul? Do you understand how he's setting this up? So then we get to verse 4 and verse 5. Now my watch battery was shot, so I don't. Twenty-seven. Okay, that's what I need. Somebody tell me when I get when I get close to. Uh, Sixty seconds will be twenty-nine. Yeah, uh, to a quarter of. Now I don't know all the translations around the table. I have New American in front of me. Every man who has, and if you're following New American, something on his head, and something puts uh, the editors put something in italics. What does that mean? There's no word there in the Greek language. An old Baptist preacher said, when you see it in italics, put emphasis there. No, that's not the right way to say it. When there's italics, it means that the editors have supplied a word. So, I mean, this is what makes verse 4 so difficult. Every man who has blank on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. All right, now, as I think it was Darrell when he asked his question, I responded this way. Apparently, apparently, in the Greek and Roman world, when a man went into the idol temples, he took his toga and put it up over his head. Okay? Not that hard, but do you understand what I mean? Okay. So Paul is probably alluding to that. Every man who has, I'll fill this in, that I think is probably the right, puts his toga up over his head while praying and prophesying. Praying and prophesying are words of worship. You with me? They're words of worship. 
So let's, thank you. So let's paraphrase it. When you go to worship as a man, if you are engaged in a pagan practice of adorning your body, you are disgracing your head. Who's the head of the man? Christ. Christ. So another way of paraphrasing that. If you adorn your body in a pagan manner, you are disgracing Jesus. So this is this whole my take on this is that it has to do with reverence. It does have it's worship and reverence, exactly. But he's coming from the basis of the pagan what I'm hearing. In the Greco Roman world. You know how you're symbols. There and symbols. Yeah. Things that are symbolic. So, I mean, for you and me, for you and me, it, it's really difficult to identify with this because, I mean, we don't, so, well, let me put it, let's put it this way in the form of a question. Maybe you can help me think through this. What would be some examples of something like this today? Christmas. Christmas. Explain. Um, some of Okay, but most of those have probably become pretty neutral because we don't even know where they started. But that could be. But try to think, try to think of something in 2014. I mean, it's really hard. Well, I'm thinking of if a, if a woman came in. I, that's fat man. We're, verse four is about the man. You're talking about something literal. About what? You're not talking about something literal, are you? Yeah. Well, it's it's a, it's symbol. Look, it's symbolic in the sense that whatever what whatever the man was doing in the first century in Corinth. Now, remember what I said: the transcultural principle we're going to end up with is you dress or adorn your body for worship in such a way that you do not draw attention to yourself, because you want people in worship to be focusing on Jesus. So, uh, as you're going to see when I get to verse 5, this is not difficult for us. You dress, you adorn your body in such a way that you not draw attention. Okay, a woman walks into worship service in a church in 2014 with a very tight sweater and a very short miniskirt. And she has high heels on, and her hair is puffed up. You see, it's not that any of those things are necessarily in and of themselves evil, but she intentionally did that. She intentionally adorned her body in that way, and she walks down the aisle of the church. What happens? Every man in that body gets his eyes and focus and thoughts off of Jesus and gets it on that woman. And every woman in the congregation gets her eyes and, off the, and, and nails her husband and, and starts hurling darts uh, of emotional darts on that woman. You follow what I'm saying? So whatever, and that's, that's hard for us. But what is apparently the scenario is a man is going to the worship service in Corinth and in effect, acting as he acted when he went into a pagan worship service. You following? Mm-hmm. And Paul says that's disgracing Jesus. So 
So if a guy walked into a church with a Husker helmet on, or had a just, I don't know, whatever, Husker and, and had or had a big, you know, go in you on it, you know, front and back. Well, yeah, I mean something like that, as you know, distracting. Difficult as that is for us to accept that, that is something you probably should not do, because it is drawing attention to yourself. And getting the focus off of Christ. It is disgracing to you. See, so, I mean, that that's almost absurd, but yet in Nebraska, I can see that happening. <laughs> you know, in other states, they don't do that. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Yeah, I'm just kidding. I, I know they do. Then why did I grow I mean, am I that naive? I mean, why did I grow up then? having the women come in church with a little napkin on their head and the guys always having their hats off. Why, if these people were supposed to be trained in Scripture, why would we be doing that for most of them? That, they're cultural practices that in and of themselves are neutral things. That's okay. I grew up, my mother, until about 25 years ago, my mother would never have thought to going to church without a hat on. No, well, it's got to be based on that. It does. It is. Well, part is based on that. Part is based on the tradition of the church. Like, yeah, I but see, in but the, if that is a cultural practice, there's nothing wrong with that. But to say this passage is teaching you must wear a hat to church. That the only accept that's not the cultural principle. That's not the transcultural principle here. The transcultural principle is I dress, I adorn my, adorn my body, I dress for worship in such a way that I do not draw attention to myself. To disgrace either Jesus or, if it's a woman, my husband. It's those two things. And so when we look at a woman in verse 5, but every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prostrating, praying or prostrating, worship, activities of worship, disgraces her head. Meaning, her husband, for she is one and the same with her whose head is shaved. Now that we have a little more certainty on. A, a woman who was discovered to be a prostitute, one of the humiliating things they did is they would shave their head and have to parade through the town. So in effect he's saying, whatever exactly was going on, you were drawing attention to yourself to the extent that the culture draws attention to prostitutes. And that's not what you want to do. That's not how you want to adorn your body when you go to worship. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if she's disgraceful, for a woman to have her hair cut off, her head shaved, let her cover her head. Now listen. There are two things going on here. One is you're adorning your body, you're adorning your body in such a way that you don't draw attention to yourself. But you're also adorning your body and hair, etc., in such a way that you are maintaining the sexual distinctive between a man and a woman. That's why I wrote these two, um, here they are, these two questions kind of in the middle. How do we maintain sex, or maybe I shouldn't say sexual, um, gender? Gender is the better way to put this. The gender distinctive. 
And what are the symbols of this order, meaning this order? You see what I mean? The symbol. Um, in the ancient world, we can figure out what they were. In the, in the, in the world in which we live today, it's, it's, a, little, it's a little more fluid. Uh, I mean, it, it really is. I don't think... I really don't think we have any difficulty, if we really are honest about it, understanding the transcultural principle, I adorn my body for worship in such a way that I don't draw attention to myself. I think we can figure that out. How do I adorn my body in such a way for worship that I maintain gender distinctives? Well, at least... At least this is saying something about the unisex movement in our culture. And you know what I mean when I say you know, where there's, there's just there's no difference between the man and the woman. Well, I mean there is difference, but even you know the unisex movement is you know we now have unisex bathrooms, you know those kinds of. But what you're doing is God, and you go back to the creation ordinance of God. God created the human race in two grand streams, male and female. Male and female, he created them. And those distinctive differences are important to God and therefore should be important to us. So whatever those symbols are, whatever those practices are, whatever those distinctives are, it's important to maintain them. Jim, it's, it's not just a lot of the movement isn't just for equality. Uh, it's for having your own personal uh, control free uh, from any deity supervision or any biblical principle uh, in, in, in part, perhaps, um, just to assert man as almost being superior to whatever is... Do you mean man, man gender man or gender neutral man? General neutral. Okay, human beings. Yeah, mankind. As, okay. Don't, I mean, isn't it a form of, of rebellion in some way? Some I think, it could be I think. I think it is basically. When you distill it down, it is a, uh, I, I think it essentially is a rebellion against what God has done and um, how God has ordered them. At my church, I'm uh, I've been, my, my pastor, the pastor where I part-time staff, has asked me to do a series of four weeks on Genesis 1 through 11. And I just started. Actually, Andrew was, was there last week. But uh, it's, been in, it's been good for me to study that. It's been a long time since I really studied it. But, you know, you, when you really, really focus on what God was doing in Genesis 1 and 2, and God declares things that are good. And you know, he does that after each day. You have to really define what good means there. And good means that, that which is conducive to order, structure, and life. That's what good means. God's world is a world of order. Now, obviously... The, the curse, which is in Genesis 3, which I'm going to talk about this week in the message, but that, that's really, really important. God took that which was chaotic, Genesis 1, 2a, 
Those wor- none of those words there are good words. Without void, empty, and darkness. None those three words that are used through scripture, they are never positive words. And there are there's some things I think are going on there, but that's not the point I'm making. And what does God do? He brings order, day one, day two, day three. And then he fills those orderly sections with life, day four, day five, and day six. And on day six, the crowning aspect of his work is the human race, which bear his image. The only part of his creation he says that. And it is his image bearers, male and female, he created them, have dominion over my world, rule over my world. God gives the human race the stewardship responsibility to maintain that order, that structure, and that which is conducive to life. And then what happens? Sin. But God doesn't remove that. That responsibility is still there. When I think of God saying it was good, I always envisioned him saying the word proper. As it should be. It is. That's not. That's not bad. As long as proper is understood. I mean, it isn't. As, as it should. You know, yeah. Well, as it should be in the sense that this is why I created it. Yeah. My world is not a disorderly, chaotic world. My my world is not do, everybody doing what they want to do. Yeah. Structure, and it's that which is conducive to life. Because if you look at day four, day five, and day six, God has filled his world with life. You know, the, the, the fish to populate the seas, the birds to populate the air, and then the beast to the field, I mean, all that stuff, and then crowning creation, part of his creation, humans, to, to populate the dry land. But he gives to that response, if that response is a rule to the human race. And it's male and female he created them. Male and female he created them. And so it's just, it's, it, when you see that, then you see as God is laying all these things out in the church, there's order and there's structure. It doesn't have anything to do with about people's value and worth. Value and worth is established by being in the image of God, being equal before the cross. Being, that's how value and worth is established. But if things are going to be orderly and structured, People have to have roles. People have to have assignments. And that's what this stuff's doing. But we don't want to accept that. Yeah, I'm yeah. getting to your point, basically. Yeah. We don't want to accept that. You don't? Now, why don't you want to accept it? Well, because I want to rule. I want to lead. I don't, I don't want to come under God's authority. And what does God say? All right. If you don't want to live under my authority, you don't have to but you will have to live with the consequences. That would be like Andrew saying, I'm going to take the, the desk, uh, next one over, and uh, I'm, going to, I'm going to run it the way I see fit, and uh, we'll see where that goes. Um, or, you know, you, know, you say, I, I, I've got it. I'll take it over. And what, what's orderly and meaningful, even to the people underneath, suddenly is sort of chaotic and confusing, confusing and, uh, and sort of threatening, maybe, intimidating. You, know. you lose a lot of security, I would think, in that kind of role-playing where everyone's trying to flip around and 
the I hope your fathers I tied stuff into Genesis. God knows what he's doing. And God's the creator, and God has the right and, and indeed the authority to set up the structures. But God's a gentleman. He never forces us. And he doesn't. God, they're not, we're not robots. But the amazing, and then there's a whole other thing that comes up with Genesis 3, but uh, anyway... This is part of that order and structure and that which is conducive to life and to what God's trying to do. But he said, okay, if you don't want to follow it, I'm allowing you that freedom, in a sense. I mean, I don't think any of us would disagree. This autonomy and doing whatever you want hasn't produced order. It's produced dysfunction and hurt and pain. And un- unbelievable disasters in people's lives, and we are getting we are, especially in America, but more broadly speaking throughout the world, we're getting farther and farther and farther and farther away. And it's it's really it's I'm not a doom and gloom person because God's at the end God's going to win everything's going to be according to His plan. But it's just uh, it's it's really sad. It's sad. This whole thing about. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And it just seemed like it was less than six months, and boom. <laughs> uh, but it, it, you go somewhere, and it's a couple of cities over, and it's there too. Um, but where, you know, some some people, uh, I'd probably be in that bunch too, uh, struggle sometimes with the, the what is judged to be an improper dress code. Uh, it's one thing to see them coming to church in shorts, jeans, holes in the jeans, or whatever. Uh, it's another thing to see them serving, being the ones involved in serving the communion mm. in that. Or you talked about the the It's one thing to see her doing that. It's another thing to see her up there leading worship. Yeah. I mean, why aren't there some kind of guidelines? Clarity with regards to that, because you know this, the statement comes back that well, you know, we can we will accept people the way they are. Yeah. But when it's in the front, I mean, it definitely is a distraction. Well, I think, Daryl, if I can go back to that that transcultural principle, I adorn my body for worship in such a way that it's not to draw attention to myself, and if. Um, I think your example was if, if a gal, for example, is up there leading and singing and so on, and she's got a very tight blouse on, a very tight, you know, that, those kinds of things, one in the leadership should just say to her, okay, here's the transcultural principle I show you in Scripture. Let's think a little bit about how you are adorning yourself as a leader in the, in the worship, in the singing part of our worship. I mean, it's the, the thing that I don't think we want to do, Daryl, is, okay, let's start putting down lists and guidelines now. That becomes so difficult. It, it, it was, uh, let me tell you something that really struck me. Peggy got me, uh, for Christmas, she got me Ken Burns. Do you know Ken Burns is? He does documentaries. He did a thing on baseball, the history of baseball. 
And I, I was really struck because that is absolutely fabulous. I'm just absolutely loving was it. Was that a pun there? Huh? Was that a pun on the word strike? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I, no, what, no, what I'm getting to, because I've got to get out of here, is it's amazing in the early 20th century how people dress coming to baseball games. Men wore three-piece suits and vests, and women wore long dresses and big hats. I, mean, I would say, how could you possibly stand that in July, you know, in New York City in July at Yankee Stadium? And, I mean, it's just, that was part of the culture of America. When you left house, your house, you put on your best. Whether you're going to a movie or whether you're going to... When I was in the 1950s growing up, we used to go window shopping in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. I don't know if it, what do you mean by that. Because at that time, the stores were on these big windows like that. And, and you go window shopping, and mom would put on her best dress. Dad would put on his coat and tie. We're going window shopping on a Saturday night. But that was the cultural practice. You walked outside the house, you put on your best. Not just going to church. Now... The cultural guiding principle in America is you put on your worst wherever you go. So I anyway. pay twice as much for it. Yeah, being a little bit facetious. I'm sorry, guys. I've got to go here. We're going to pick up in chapter 13 next week. <laughs> <laughs>